0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, September 9th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. As the video for the Trump Turnberry Hotel in Scotland begins, we see lush greens, sweeping vistas, a gorgeous, gigantic hotel, and then a uniformed hotel employee. Seems like the concierge, but can we really be sure he's Scottish?
1: I'm Neil Grierson. I'm senior concierge here at Trump Turnberry, a luxury collection resort Scotland.
0: Okay, he's Scottish. The accent, smoky, but also with Pete. But the Trump Turnberry Resort, which our president owns and his family makes money on, $23 million in 2017, in fact is located near Prestwick Airport. So when the Air Force has to stop and refuel at Prestwick, well, I guess guests of Mr. Trump stay at Trump Turnberry Hotel. The only thing is, the hotel, in fact, stopping and refueling at Prestwick, is pretty far out of the way. And stays are up, way up, under the Trump administration. And did we mention the Trump administration, or at least the Trump family, is making money? on the branch of the military, of which Donald Trump is the commander. Is this illegal? Maybe not. But the Air Force's top spokesman says, even if the stays are within government rates, they quote, might be allowable, but not advisable. So let's replay that promotional video and add a tag to the existing Turnberry motto. Old motto?
1: Come here and be made feel welcome. New motto,
0: allowable, but not advisable. That's more of an Aberdeen accent. I was going for Glasgow. Sorry about that. Anyway, Politico quoted a senior Air Force official who was previously stationed at the Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska, where the very crew of the C-17 in question that's been refueling at Prestwick is based. And this guy said, choosing to refuel in Glasgow and stay at the Trump Turnberry about a half hour away is unusual. Typically, the official said, quote, air crews stay on a military base while in transit or at nearby lodgings unless all the hotels are booked or there is a Scottish sheep festival going on. A Scottish sheep festival I guess, or as they call it in Scotland, a town hall meeting, a sheep festival. Perhaps that's code for Trump forcing the military into blindly following his dictates. There was one other weird figure in the New York Times coverage of this. Since October 2017, records show the Air Force made 917 purchases at the airport worth a total of $17.2 million. I hope that's almost entirely on fuel and not those big bags of M&Ms or in-flight gum. At an average of $17,000 per purchase, more than $17,000 per purchase, even if it's duty free, well, let's just say allowable, but not advisable. ABNA, it's the new MAGA. On the show today, the Donald invites the Taliban to camp with him. That's in the spiel. But first, Randall Monroe is the cartoonist behind XKCD, and that's the typically... Uh, stick figure featuring cartoon online and the stick figures talking to another stick figure when the topic is computers or philosophy or science or ontology or something. Although there is plenty of flowchart humor in XKCD, there are some jokes where it might help to know a little coding. You know, what the far side was to a fat-headed pockmarked dude in a horribly striped shirt. What Bloop County was to sarcastic humor with penguins. Randall Monroe's XKCD is to unapologetic brainy nerd humor. Now, Monroe is out with another book. It's How To, where he informs readers, say, how to build a lava moat or how to cross a river by removing all the water. Also, there are several non liquid or viscous substance chapters. Randall Monroe up next. So according to his official bio on his official comic website, who is Randall Monroe? I'm just this guy, you know. He worked in robotics at NASA's Langley Research Center. And now he cartoons and writes books and thinks about things like no one else does. His newest book is called How to Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real World Problems. Randall Monroe is the creator of XKCD. It's not. It's not supposed to be the letters. It's. You want to try to pronounce it, Randall? I've tried. I picked letters that deliberately didn't have an
2: obvious pronunciation because yes. I didn't want people to think it was
0: a word. So, how to is your third book? Uh, one of the books pretty much sprang from XKCD ex- <laughs> directly, right? <laughs>
2: Well, so I had done a book early on that was a collection of my comic strips, which I called XKCD Volume Zero. Yes. Um, And that was sort of a fun project that was semi-self-published with a friend of mine who was doing publishing. Um, And then since then, I've done, you know, three kind of traditional books. Uh, And the first one was What If, which was where I took people's questions that they sent in to me. All
0: real questions from real listeners. Yes, real. we should say, real readers, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, well, what I discovered was that when I started doing comics about science topics, you know, I would, because that's what I was, you know, studying physics when I was Mm -hmm. in university, and Uh, worked on robots. And I would do comics about these scientific topics. And people would now and then send in uh, messages to me asking me to settle arguments they were having with their friends about something scientific. Uh And the subtext to the email was always, and sometimes they would say this explicitly, this question seemed too pointless to bother a real scientist with. (laughs) But uh, But so we agreed that you would be a good good person to talk to about it. And I would have so much fun answering these questions because they always would. It would be a simple question, but it would lead me down like all kinds of rabbit holes of research. And I would write up my answers. And then I was like, hey, these are a lot of fun. And also, I put a bunch of work into them. I should I should put these up on my website. Maybe people will like to read them.
0: And, And from there, the book project came.
2: And did better questions come or worse questions? I have from the very start had far more questions than I could possibly answer. And and they're mostly good. There are a lot of them that are kind of unanswerable like what would happen if an uh, unstoppable force met an immovable object, you know where it's like you can you can find a fun angle on that but yes. like I I don't really no, I don't know if the question makes sense. Right. But I feel like the the best questions come from little kids, which is not necessarily because little kids are more creative than adults. I think. I mean, they don't, I don't know, know maybe not to be uncreative. They, ha- they exactly. don't have the inhibitor on. Yeah. Yes, I love it because they're not trying to impress anyone. Mm-hmm. No, no little kid ever says, "I have a question." That's actually more of a statement. Right. Little kids are just like, I want to build a building that's a billion stories tall. Can I do it or will it fall down? You know, and you're like, great question.
0: Now, some of those questions that don't have any answers are because they're actually more linguistic paradoxes, the unstoppable and the immovable, or can God create him a rock he could not lift. But some of them, I think, probably might have an answer. I think this might not be of your domain necessarily, but I think chicken and an egg really has an answer and it has to be an egg. Oh, yeah,
2: Yeah. for sure. I mean, and, and maybe, you know, there might be some definitions there. Uh, and maybe there 's some surprising biology in there, like that 's the kind of question where our, I would just love to like track down a biologist and and grill them about you know exactly how that definition works yes what 's really fun about that kind of question is often i 'll have an idea of how that'll work, and then I go and talk to someone who works in that field, um, which is not my first instinct because i 'm kind of introverted. I prefer to just sit there and read papers. But when I talk to them often, I find out like, oh wow there 's something really surprising about how animals develop that actually suggests a different dividing line for chicken and egg and like this doesn't work how I thought it did. This is so cool. And you know? it's a
0: little, I don't know if it's frustrating or amazing, but all these people with all this knowledge are walking around not knowing that anyone else would find this interesting. Like, they're, I'm sure most of the time they're like, yeah, that's no big deal. You just had to ask me. And then you're saying, but no one knew this. The world needs to know via stick figure cartoons.
2: Um, I'll ask people now and then like, hey, you're doing this really cool research. And, you know, they were trying to figure out how to present it to people. And I would be like, okay, well, I, I can help. Uh, like, what kind of thing do you think would make like a good, uh, you know, a good comic or a good story. I can try to help you put this together. And no one ever really seems to be able to like name which part of their research would work for that. Then when I talk to them, they start talking about their research and then the stuff where they get really excited and start tripping over their words, you know, and like they're like, oh, man, and then hear what's really cool. And their voice changes. It's like, oh, right there. That's it. Yeah, The thing you're excited
0: about, just try to share why it's so exciting. Now, does you this know? say something about science education in general? Does it say something about just the way humans experience the things that they're knowledgeable about? Or maybe it says something about human beings' inability to anticipate the needs of an audience or the areas of ignorance among a potential audience.
2: I don't, I don't know. The, the one minor, you know, one theory that I have, one thing that, that I think might be helpful is it's really hard to remember what it's like to not know something. Yes. So once you've learned something, once you become an expert in a field, there's all this stuff that you take for granted and you forget that other people you're talking to don't have all that context because it's just, it's like impossible to take your brain and like rewind it to before you knew something. Right. So when you talk about something, y- you might use words or throw out concepts that, to you are so natural that you're like, oh yeah, everyone knows this. And it's easy to forget that like not everyone knows that. Um, and I think that sometimes people who are like technically minded or have expertise in a particular field see how other people don't seem to be getting what they're saying and be like, well, those people just aren't interested. You yeah. know, or those people aren't smart or curious or something. And I think that's 100% the wrong lesson to take. My one piece of advice for people is never condescend or look down on people you're trying to explain something to because people are always much smarter than you think, and also know fewer words than you think, fewer of the words that you use. Yeah. If you're in a technical field and you're trying to talk to the general public,
0: people really are curious. They also don't have the context you think they do. So let's flesh it out with your process. Is it... You get the question then search for the answer, or do you sometimes come across these fantastic facts like the average, to get, to get uh, a piece of material to glow from heat, it has to be 600 degrees, or you come across the existence of lava critics and kind of have to uh, work backwards to get to a question that allows you to impart the readers with this knowledge?
2: For the chapters I did in How To, most of them started with a question that I wanted to answer and I was trying to think of good, you know, a a task that I'm trying to think of what's a good way to do this Mm -hmm. and I just would brainstorm and like kind of turn off the filter of like that idea sounds bad, move on. And said, "Okay, that idea sounds bad, but let's take a closer look at it. And then, yes, indeed, it is bad, but it's bad for even more exciting reasons than I thought. But there were also a few uh, questions where I would, like, come across a really interesting piece of research and then file it away and think, like, there's got to be a way I could apply this to something. What was
0: one of those? Do you remember? For
2: a while, I've had this paper that was uh, unearthed uh, and sent to me by the historian Alex Wellerstein about a U.S. government project uh, during the Cold War where they bought a bunch of beer and soda from uh, local uh, convenience stores and then tested nuclear weapons on them, on the sodas, not the stores. And you, the, which is
0: exactly a footnote that you say in the book, by the way. That, those exact words, funny.
2: So I, <laughs> I, um, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, every time, every time I try to phrase that, I pause and I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> that does sound ambiguous. The them, yeah. Um, so what they did is they bought they the, the there's this giant report you can go find it online it's a uh, uh, Alex Wellerstein has posted a copy of it it's the effects of nuclear explosions on commercially packaged beverages and they use this to uh, it sounds the,
0: very benign yeah given yeah the I testing. mean yeah
2: I mean I'd say it sounds benign except for a couple of words in the middle there it <laughs> yeah. sounds <seemed> pretty dramatic <laughs> the nuclear um, one yeah um, but they they wanted to the the purpose of this report was to test whether or not these drinks that are commercially packaged that you'd find in a convenience store could be used as a source of hydration during the You know rescue efforts after a nuclear attack. Right. And so they put these bottles out in the middle of the desert. And I love the detail in these things. So they explained, like, we placed some of them oriented vertically with the base on the ground. Some of them were laid on their side. A portion with the nose, the mouth of the bottle pointed toward the epicenter. A portion pointed edge on, and several at forty-five degrees in the following configuration. And then they, you know, set off the nuclear weapon and then checked the beer checked the bottles, but part of me wondered when I read that they procured them from local establishments... Part of me was a little bit suspicious that this entire project, this entire test series was concocted as a cover story after someone was caught (laughs) buying drinks on their government account.
0: Yeah. And imagine that the the answer was, yeah, it's fine at a 45-degree angle. Like, how is that actionable? Hey, a nuclear weapon just went (laughs) off 200 miles from here. Is it safe to drink the Pepsi? It depends. What's the angle of the bottle opening?
2: You you know what I've really always wondered is... um, and, and I've asked around, I've asked a couple of historians uh, and people who study this, and, and I, haven't, I haven't really gotten an answer, uh, is, you know, you see all those videos of the house that was destroyed, right. you know, with the, there's a nuclear test and the trees bend over and the house, you know, disintegrates. And I know they built a lot of these houses, and these were built specifically for these tests. It wasn't like they just found a house somewhere. It was like, ah, oh, it looks like no one's home. Right. Um,
0: the desert in Nevada. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. exactly. Yeah. So they
2: built these houses... But they they were testing every aspect of them, like, you know how, how did the paint catch fire? How did that? So what I want to know is the people who were building those houses, the contractors, the you know the government, construction workers, who uh, you know, they were putting in the molding and yeah. the wiring. How much did they stick to code? Yeah, their attention
0: to detail. Like, exactly. Because, like,
2: if I were building a house there and I were putting in the the molding around the baseboard, you know, where and I'm painting it because yeah. the paint might be important. Like, do you mask the paint with masking tape, or are you just like, eh? If I get a few drops, it's <laughs> yeah. fine.
0: What's the drop cloth situation? Exactly. And I've like, lived if, in a couple apartments that definitely were built for the purpose of <laughs> being destroyed by a nuclear test.
2: Yeah, I feel like. I feel like I'd start cutting corners on that, but then you don't know what corners are going to be important. And so I've always wondered, what's the trade-off there? Or if you're building one of these and you're like, I don't care who lives here or what this is for, I'm going to build this the correct way. You know, maybe if you build houses and you just get used to it, you don't don't care what it's used for once you're done.
0: But the funny thing is, or among the funny things about package beverage testing in the face of a nuclear weapon. This informed your chapter on how to quickly fill a swimming pool, right? <laughs> like if you bought Fiji bottles first, you were asking, can I shoot them? Can I decapitate them? Can I nuke them? And then the study comes up.
2: Well, and this was a great example of how when I start trying to solve a problem and I come up with an idea to solve it, it then creates a bunch of new problems. Right. And so I had this problem of uh, of how to fill a swimming pool. And if your hose is uh, has a high enough flow rate, then you can fill a swimming pool no problem, you know, in the time before the party, depending on how long you have to go. But if you can't do that, I looked at other ways to quickly get water. And one of the ways I thought about was you can do same day ordering for all kinds of stuff. Can you just go and buy individual packs of water bottles, uh, you know, off of off of uh, Amazon or whatever for same day delivery? And it would cost, you know, $150,000. But uh, maybe, maybe you have that budget and every other solution doesn't work. So, OK. So, but then I realized you'd get those bottles, they'd arrive. And how do you get the water into the pool? Because if you start opening them one at a time, a person would take days to fill a pool, even if they were opening bottles 24-7. Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, this is easy. You cut, a, cut them in half, you know, with something. And then you cut a whole pallet of bottles in half at once. And so a lot of the time I'll go and look for research. Uh, you know, I'll look for a paper on a subject. But sometimes the best way to find out whether something is easy or not, it's to just go on YouTube because there's always someone who has in their backyard, someone who has a sword and a bunch of water bottles and is like, you know what? I'm going to try. And what I found from those videos is it, it's, it's harder than you think to cut a row of water bottles in half because the sword gets deflected by the water. Right. Um, and so they had, their, in all the, a lot of these videos, they'll have like multiple takes because the first time it didn't work as well as they thought. So I was like, I, I just had to keep thinking of new ways. How can you make a ho- bunch of holes in a bunch of bottles of water you <laughs> And then, and that's uh, that was my excuse to talk about this wonderful uh, use of nuclear weapons against commercially packaged beverages.
0: <laughs> now, I noticed that of the chapters, some are convergent and some are divergent. Divergent: how to cross a river. This can lead to any manner, and you probably had to stop based on some external mechanism. All right, I can't go any further. These are all the ways to cross a river. But then, how to build a lava moat? You really have to diverge on the answer to that. It's not as uh, open-ended a question, I would say.
2: There are certainly some places where, like, I got a, a simple answer and then it opened up new questions and then I would pursue a whole bunch of those. And some of them were just kind of dead ends. You know, I got to an answer, but it wasn't that interesting. Or I found, like, oh, no, that really wouldn't work and it's not for a surprising reason or anything. It's just kind of mundane. And so what I would do is, is I'd reach a certain point and then kind of back up out of each rabbit hole, figure out which ones are the most fun and interesting and the ones where I found something cool that I thought people would like to see.
0: And... Since you've been doing it, have you relied on outside researchers more than you were in the beginning? Like picking up phones, people will return your calls now that they know you, maybe they read you. With this
2: book, I got to do that a little bit more um, and reached out to some like really unusual and exciting
0: people. Who's the person who was way, way overqualified for what you asked them?
2: Uh, There was a a chapter where for uh, uh, complicated reasons, I was trying to get data on how well different pieces of sports equipment would work for uh, hitting a wedding photography drone that is for some reason out of control Mm -hmm. or uh, spying or something. And I, was, I had data on basketball shooting and how accurate it is and on uh, baseball pitches and how accurate those are. Um, but I didn't have anything on tennis serves. Somehow, I, I uh, reached out to and got a surprisingly enthusiastic response from Serena Williams, <laughs> who not only I was hoping to just get some accuracy data from her, yeah. but she got an actual drone and her husband flew it out over the court while she was practicing, and she served tennis balls at it until she hit it. And uh, uh, I got to use that as input into my model, and I think that's just about the coolest data point I, I could possibly have
0: gathered. Is there video of this, including some from the drone's perspective?
2: Um, the drone that we chose had a broken camera, uh, like that they, that they uh, that they picked out. But that was part of the reason because it, it was kind of an expensive model. Yeah, it was euthanasia yeah. anyway.
0: Yeah. Randall Monroe is the author of, well, he's the creator of uh, XXT, which is XKCD, the online comic strip. His new book is How to Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real World Problems. Good to meet you, Randall. Oh, great to meet you. Thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. I could mock Fox News every day of the week if it were my want. We're not. There is one exception. I so do enjoy the focused inquisition of Chris Wallace, and yet I have to mock him because Fox always engages in this specific kind of hype. It turns out you will never guess who's coming on the show. It's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We'll discuss all this with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, live only on Fox News Sunday. Only on Fox, huh? That'd be news to ABC. That's one of many questions for our first guest, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. CBS.
2: We turn now to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, good
0: morning. NBC. Joining me now on this issue and many others, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to Meet the Press. CNN. Joining me now to talk about all this, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Secretary Pompeo, thanks so much for joining us. And I'm guessing the Golf Channel. No, Mike Pompeo's presence was... Not exclusive and not particularly clarifying as to the issue of the day, which was, why would you invite the Taliban over? The Taliban. I mean, these guys are so bad. They're like the Taliban of go-to badness analogies. Only Mike Pompeo doesn't deal in badness. Oh, no. He's more of uh, the opposite mindset.
1: I've said this repeatedly. As long as President Trump wants me to be a secretary of state, I will do what I've been doing for the last, goodness, almost year and a half now. Focus.
0: On... That was on ABC, as was this.
1: The president hasn't yet made a decision on that. We'll be talking about that in the coming days. Uh, president Trump's made very clear. Um, we spend, George, oh, goodness, over $30 billion a year in Afghanistan. And...
0: No, no, not good. Nothing about goodness spending that much a year in Afghanistan. As he said to face the nation.
1: They had committed to doing so to get them to uh, agree to talk to their other taf- Afghan brothers and sisters, something that multiple administrations have tried to do for, goodness, 15 plus years now. We have-
0: he uses goodness. I've been noting his use of goodness. Whenever he has to reach for a number, he conjures it by saying, goodness, how, how much is this? It's about, oh, wouldn't you know it? 30 billion, 15 years. And it's funny that he he does this mental ledger and uses goodness to get to these huge figures, these almost brain-meltingly incomprehensible expenditures of time or treasure, like $30 billion a year in Afghanistan, or 15 years of a war, staggering, like one and a half years working for Trump. So folksiness aside, why would Trump invite the Taliban to Camp David?
1: Goodness knows.
0: indeed. Indeed. Is it because guests of the president visit the luxurious Camp David established by President Eisenhower as a retreat from the hectic pace of D.C.? Camp David is where presidents go to strategize, recharge, and in one case retreat after the horrific attacks of 9-11 as aided by the Taliban, where they will eat Trump steak, drink Trump vodka, no thanks, not halal, and be given a tour by your gracious host. And these... No one thought these could be made. These are the secret entries and exit. Pay attention to our secure camp. A lot of people said I shouldn't be showing you this, but it really is fantastic. Listen, I don't care if to sign a peace deal with the Taliban, the freaking Taliban, you treat them like they're something other than repressive reactionary zealots. I really don't care. Pompeo was asked to respond to the words of Liz Cheney. Camp David is where America's leaders met to plan our response after al-Qaeda, supported by the Taliban, killed 3,000 Americans on 9-11. No member of the Taliban should set foot there, ever. Uh, What is this, the reverse 9-11 mosque? The Camp David is now the holy of the holies? It's the place where presidents sometimes invite foreign dignitaries and even occasionally foreign undignitaries, if you know your history. If that's part of a deal that ends a war and saves lives and saves tons of money, I'm fine with it. But that's not how it was being used this time. It was a bit of stage management that did not lead to a deal. It was the set, not the setting. It was the set for another of Trump's failed TV pilots. Based on the reporting of the Times and the Post and CNN, if Trump hadn't involved himself and his plaything Camp David, there probably would have been a deal by now. Not that the deal would have definitely worked, but it was the culmination of what responsible adults within the administration were working on. And then Trump inserts himself, scuppers the entire thing, because the Taliban took responsibility for a car bombing in Kabul that killed a U.S. soldier. If the important thing was the agreement, you could just wait a week, Maybe a week and a half, and then you sign this deal. You don't get all the domestic fanfare out of it, but you do get something like a peace deal in Afghanistan. You could just get the deal done as opposed to emphasizing the trappings of the deal. You could, I could, Trump can't. Because Trump was convinced that this would be a moment with the Taliban on one side and Afghan President Ghani on the other side and him in the middle handing out pens. Oh, he loves the pens. And he couldn't allow it to proceed. A Taliban spokesman, Zabahullah Mujahid, told the BBC that, quote, pulling out of the peace process before the signing of the agreement because of one explosion showed the U.S.'s lack of maturity and experience. I don't want to credit the Taliban. A car explosion that kills a lot of people should be taken the seri- should be taken seriously. But they're kind of right. They're the Taliban. Taliban's gonna Taliban. It's what the Taliban does. It's why we need a peace agreement in the first place. They are bad dudes, which is exactly a point that Pompeo was making on Face the Nation.
1: Sadly, uh, you often have to deal with some pretty bad characters to get peace. I, uh, I'd i say to anybody who say you shouldn't negotiate with the Taliban, tell me how else they'd like us to talk to, to try and get reconciliation in Afghanistan.
0: Yes, exactly. We need to negotiate with these killers in Camp David. But what did these killers do? They killed? Oh, they can't come to Camp David. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I just have to keep asking myself, what the hell is this administration's strategy?
1: Goodness knows.
0: And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader. And that's it. Full stop. That's it. He's the one who produced The Gist. The gist, you know, the U.S. has lost 6,700 service members fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq and has killed an estimated 300,000 Afghan or Iraqi combatants or civilians. G. willikers. oomper peru do peru and thanks for listening.